production. Anita Muljani is an international speaker and New York Times best-selling author. After a four-year battle with cancer, Anita fell into a coma and was given days to live. As her doctors gathered to revive her, she journeyed into a near-death experience where she was given the choice to return to her physical form or to continue into this new realm. Anita says, I learned that my only purpose in life is to be a full expression of myself, to love myself to the core of my being and to share my heart and soul with the world without fear. In this conversation, Anita speaks to the challenges of creating a path towards higher consciousness, why it took death for her to start living and the words that changed her life. Go and live your life fearlessly and your life will unfold. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Anita Muljani is the best-selling author of many books, including Dying to Be Me and her newest book, Sensitive is the New Strong. This conversation is an exploration of many things, including the journey for personal meaning beyond the ego, understanding fear and accepting death. Anita's story reminds us of the impermanence of everything and the sacredness of each day. My hope is that our conversation allows you to help identify the blocks you have created in your own life and sets you on the path to healing that we all wish to seek. Anita Muljani, take us back to 2001 because your life has obviously changed in the most miraculous way. But in 2001, you were a different person to what you are today. Let us go back there and and tell us a bit about that. So back in 2001, this was even before I had a diagnosis of cancer, which came later. Um, I was a very different person. I was somebody who I would call a people pleaser, (laughs) a doormat. Um, I was always uh, trying to win other people's approval. Everything I did was to win people's approval. And I was always worried whether people would like me. I lived in a lot of fear, fear of not being good enough, fear of not being liked. Um, Also other kinds of fears, fears, fear of illness, fear of of, um, financial fears of not having enough money. My life was actually driven by fears. And... um, And then in 2002, I was diagnosed with lymphoma and and that progressed over a period of four years. But even before I was diagnosed, in 2001, my best friend was diagnosed with cancer, with a very aggressive form of cancer. And she was my best friend. We were the same age. We were young and vibrant at that time in 2001. Um, And when she got her diagnosis, it shocked me. It was almost as if I got it. That's how strongly I felt it. it. Um, 
I realized many years later that I'm an empath and so I absorb other people's mm-hmm. feelings. But I literally absorbed her fear and I wanted to do everything I could to help her on this journey. The cancer she was diagnosed with was a very rare and aggressive form and the doctors told her that she only had a 5% chance of survival. And so they gave her very aggressive treatments to deal with it. As I watched her go through this, um, I was literally, without realizing it, taking on all her pain and her fear. And I was there with her, wanting, like constantly wanting her to feel better. And I was helping her and helping her kids. And, and I wasn't able to do anything for myself while she was sick. Um, like if I would go out with friends, I would feel guilty because she was suffering and I was having a good time. If I went shopping, I would feel guilty. Like, um, you know, who do I think I am buying these beautiful clothes while my friend is lying in hospital and dying and knowing that her days are numbered. And so I wasn't able to do anything good for myself. And over the months, as her health deteriorated, Things, you know, like even my life was kind of falling apart because I wasn't paying attention to my health, mm. my well-being. I was becoming drained because I was there. I was making myself available for her 24-7 and being at the hospital and running her errands and just doing everything I could. And it wasn't that she was demanding it. Mm. It was more me making myself available. And I wasn't paying attention to my life and my life was falling apart. And every time I was facing any issues, like I was, if I was feeling unwell, unplugged, I would still plot on because I was think, I would say to myself, um, that, that my problems are nothing compared to hers. And so I kept minimizing my problems until my problems got bigger and bigger. And finally, I was feeling this lump on the side of my neck in uh, April of 2002. And I went to the doctor and uh, he did a biopsy and he said it was lymphoma and then sent me to have scans to have it what they call staged. And he said, it's stage two, which means it wasn't just restricted to that area. It had spread to a quadrant of my body. And, um, and, And so, of course, I was like, filled with fear now. I was dealing with something big. But there was a part of me that felt, ah, now I get to focus on myself. Mm. I get to take care of myself. So it was like this diagnosis gave me the excuse or the reason I needed to take care of myself. Um, Up until that point, I had never felt worthy or deserving of taking care of myself. I was someone who always felt other people's problems are more important than mine. I was always putting myself last and my problems to the back. And now I had this opportunity Mm. to actually take care of myself. And so I share this with people to say, you don't need a reason to take care of yourself. Why do you think, Anita, you had so much fear in you? Where did that stem from? I think it's cultural conditioning. I mean, and I don't think it's unique to me, but I speak for myself. Um, Like I I grew up in a culture with a lot of gender disparities. So I grew up believing that um, women, 
a woman's role was to serve the men in her life and yes. to be subservient to the men in her life. Women were rewarded. The more subservient we were, the more we were rewarded. And the more and the more useful we were to the men in our lives, the more rewarded we were for that. So so basically that that's um you know so we were uh, socialized to to be obedient to our fathers to our dads and then yes. eventually to our husbands and we always had to have a male chaperone if we were going out at night whether it was a brother or a very trusted male friend um so women were treated like they were weaker inferior yes. needed to be taken care of <clears throat> so i grew up with that social conditioning one of the things i realized when i um died when i crossed over which we'll get to in a minute was that we are so much more powerful than we have been led to believe and i realized when i was on the other side that i am a soul a spirit an aspect of the divine or a facet of god we all are that is longing to express itself through this vehicle and i had always suppressed myself because of my social conditioning yes um so yeah it was definitely social conditioning yes. and being rewarded for playing small and so you got cancer and yeah how were the years obviously after that whilst you were really you became very very unwell yes yeah, so it progressed over the years cuz i really feared the the cancer i feared the treatments i feared death my best friend passed away and when she did i mean and she and then my my brother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer and he passed away and both of them had like the best treatment supposedly the most expensive treatment at the most expensive cancer hospitals that money can buy and yet they both succumbed and so i again thought oh this this is a death sentence yeah. i'm going to die so it was just ingrained in my brain that i am going to die from this and so my health deteriorated over the four years and it reached a point um so so i was diagnosed in 2002 so by january of 2006 um i my I had tumors so so it had spread the lymphoma had metastasized and spread throughout my lymphatic system so I had tumors the size of golf balls wow. from the base of my skull all around my neck um under my arms in my chest all the way down to my abdomen and because of these tumors they were like blocking my organs and lungs and so my lungs were filling up with fluid and because they were filled up with fluid i would i had difficulty breathing and if i lied down i would choke on my own fluid oh my God. and uh, my body stopped absorbing nutrition and so i was dropping weight like crazy so at that point in 2006 i weighed about 85 pounds i looked like a skeleton but because my body wasn't absorbing fluid my muscles had completely atrophied so i couldn't walk um so i was always either sitting down laying down or being wheeled in a wheelchair i could not walk um and on february the 2nd 2006 i went into a coma and um my organs 
were shutting down one by one. I had been at home and then I was rushed to the hospital and the doctors told my family that my organs were now shutting down and that I would not be coming out of the coma and these were my final hours and they told my family I wouldn't even make it through the night. And so I was connected to all these tubes, you know, this, the heart uh, monitors and the, and the oxygen and, the, and also a nutrition tube. I was just connected to all these tubes. And, but even though my physical body was in a coma and dying, it was at that point that I felt that I had left my body and I felt amazing. I felt free and light and all the fear was gone and um, all the pain was gone. I was in so much pain and discomfort because, you know, I couldn't sleep when I was in my body because of my lungs and it was just, it was just awful. I, but now I felt free. I just felt completely free of everything and I felt like I was enveloped in just this feeling of love, unconditional love. And for the first time, because, you know, I'd been such a people pleaser, for the first time, I felt loved just because I existed. I felt like I didn't have to do anything or be anything to be worthy or deserving of this love. I felt I was worthy and deserving just because I existed. And that felt incredible. And, and I, I sensed there were other beings around me to greet me and help me through the dying process. And they loved me. It was like they were rejoicing that I had returned back home. And it was like, oh, I'm loved. Just, you know, it was like no reason. <laughs> Do you feel like you've had that feeling of love that you felt when you crossed over again in the human world? The love here in the human world is very different. So I feel we all have the ability to access it, So, which is what I try and do. And I can access it when I'm alone or when I'm in nature or sometimes when I'm meditating or when I'm listening to certain types of music, I can go back to that state of being. But when we are immersed with both feet firmly planted in this physical world, it's very hard to feel that love. Mm. Um, and that love was very powerful. And I even don't feel it is anything like the love. It's almost like it should have a word of its own. It shouldn't be called love. Because the way we use the word love here doesn't even come close to describing what I felt there. Mm. It's, a, it's, it's an all-encompassing feeling. It's almost like um, it's, it's a non-duality. It's like when you're in that state, you feel love for everyone and everything, even the people who have wronged you and harmed you. They could even be a murderer and all you feel for them is love and compassion for being in so much pain or ignorance that they need to do that, wow. that they feel the need to murder someone. Yeah. So it's that kind of love. There's no part of you that is even judging them. It's that level of love. It's just, it's just indescribable. But it's hard to function in this world with that level of love yeah. because, because you, you know, you have to deal with people all the time. Like, um, 
you know, like even people maybe exploiting you or you have yes. to deal with, with crime and, and blah, blah. And so you do need to have discernment, judgment and, and stuff like that. But from that level, it's like, wow, all I feel is compassion for everybody, including that, that criminal. Yes. Um, because I just feel for the state they're in that causes them to do what they do. They don't know what it feels like to be in this state of love. They're so removed from it. And you just want to hug them and bring them into it. Wow. And so when you crossed over, you could see what was happening from an earthly plane. You could see the nurses and the doctors and your husband. Can you tell us a bit about that? And then also what experience you had on the other side? Yes, so I was aware of everything that was going on around my physical body. Um, I could feel what they were feeling. I could hear everything they were saying. And the doctors were telling my family that I'm not even going to make it through the night. Um, my family were distraught. I could feel they were distraught. And I was wanting them to know that I was fine. But there was no way to communicate with them because I... Because, um, I was not in my body and I didn't have any biology. And even though I was aware of everything that was going on, it was not like I was looking through physical eyes. It, it was like I had 360 degree peripheral vision. I was aware of everything. But even beyond the room, like I could see what was happening um, outside down the hallway where my husband was talking to the doctor at the nurse's station. And, and so it was a very different type of awareness. It wasn't like our five sensory mm. awareness. It was very, very different. Um, but even though I knew they were distraught, um, I, did, I, I still felt everything's going to be okay, even if I died, that it's okay. Because on the other side, there's... Time is very different. I knew that even if I died, because I thought I was dying, I thought, oh, they're going to join me soon anyway, you know, because it, the time doesn't feel like a yes. long time. I knew I was going to be reunited with them. So it wasn't like I was longing to come back into my body or anything like that. Um, I was much happier being there. <laughs> and you saw your dad, your dad who had passed, he came to greet you as well as your best friend. Yes, so my best friend who had died of cancer was there. My dad was there um, and my dad, and all I felt from them was unconditional love because my dad and I had a turbulent relationship when I was growing up uh, because as I mentioned about the gender disparity and everything, and I was rebellious because I went to a British school where the cultural values were different and I learnt the more westernized more Western cultural values, which resonated with me. And I agreed with them, but they didn't work at home. They didn't work with my dad. And so we clashed because I needed to be more subservient to get married to an Indian man. And they wanted me to have an arranged marriage. And I didn't want that. And I wanted to study and I wanted to work. I wanted my freedom. I wanted to travel the world, all of which is unacceptable and makes you less desirable for marriage in our culture. Um, so we clashed a lot. But here on the other side, all I felt from my dad was pure, unconditional love. Like he understood me. He understood mm. me at a soul level. 
and I understood him and I understood that he wasn't trying to make my life miserable. So my dad had died 10 years prior, so that's why he was there on the other side. And I understood that he hadn't been deliberately trying to make my life miserable, that it it was all he knew how to do because of his cultural upbringing. Mm. And he was just doing the best he could with what he knew. Wow. And so I just felt, I felt nothing but love for him and he felt nothing but love for me. So that was really, really healing and beautiful. And what did he talk to you about? Because I know that he said a few things to you when you were over there that really kind of made sense when you ended up going back into your body. Yes, he wanted me to know that it wasn't my time to die and that I needed to go back. And um, I felt I had a choice as to whether to come back or not. And no part of me wanted to come back because it was so beautiful on that side. Mm. But he said that I had some gifts waiting for me here. And he wanted me to know, because on that side, I had this, um, what I call clarity. I understood why I had got sick. I was able to see it was because I had been a doormat and made myself small and never allowed myself or my soul to express itself. And I understood why it was that I was lying in that hospital bed dying. And, and I realized that we are actually more powerful than we've ever been led to believe. And so um, my dad wanted me to know that now that you know this truth, if you go back, your body will heal very, very quickly. Mm. And so then when I made the decision to come back, literally just before coming back into my body, my dad said to me that um, go back and live your life fearlessly. And basically that's all you have to do is to live your life fearlessly. So because, because he wanted me to know that I hadn't fulfilled my purpose and I had gifts waiting for me. I wanted to know, like, so what is my <laughs> yeah. purpose? And he wanted me to know that I didn't need to know that. All I needed to know was go and live your life fearlessly and your life will unfold. And so basically he gave me that as the only message I needed, mm. live your life fearlessly. And so it was, and, and so the thing is that during my lifetime, it was my dad who instilled fear in me. I grew up as a very, very fearful person yes. because of my dad, because I felt I never lived up to his expectations. I was never, um, you know, because I was rebellious, I was not, uh, I, I, was, I was rebelling against the culture. I was not subservient enough. I was not obedient enough. I was never... Um, I would never make a wonderful Hindu wife and all these things. I was always dis disappointing him. And, and I always thought there was something wrong with me. And I was always so fearful my whole life. And so in, during my life, it was my dad who instilled fear in me. But in death, it was my dad who released me oh from that God. fear as well. That is so, so beautiful. Yes. Yeah, so it was like a, a full circle. And he wanted me to know all you have to do is live your life fearlessly. And I realized what that meant is that it means being myself fearlessly. I'd never allowed myself to be who I am. And so really it was about allowing myself to be who I am fearlessly. And when you were over the other side, Anita, what did it look like? 
It, so this is interesting in that it can literally look like what you want it to look like. You can literally take yourself wherever you want to go because it feels like you're everywhere. Like mm-hmm. I was able to see my brother who was flying on a plane coming to see me, trying to get to me yes. in time. He wanted to get to me before I died. Um, so I was able to be in this life. I was able to even see other lifetimes that I've had. I saw other wow. lifetimes that I've had with my brother, with my husband. So literally, um, and I wasn't there long enough. If I was there longer, I would probably know more and go deeper and into other dimensions and so on. But it literally felt like I could be wherever I wanted to, but time and space was were no restrictions. Yes. So I could go back in time. But I was also able to see a little bit into the future of what I would be doing if I came back here into this physical life. So I was even able to see that I was, I saw myself speaking to thousands of people, but I didn't know what I was speaking about. And it's funny when I wrote my story, I'm so glad I wrote this um, because it's easy for me to say it now in hindsight. But I mean, I wrote it in my book, Dying to Be Me, which I wrote before, uh, you know, because I hadn't started speaking to thousands of people until after the book came out. Wow. So it was interesting, but I wrote it on a website in 2006, which is the one that Wayne Dyer discovered, Mm. where I actually wrote that I saw myself in the future speaking to thousands of people, but at that time, in that state, I didn't know what I was speaking to them about, but I just knew that I had an important purpose where I would be speaking to thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people. (laughs) That's absolutely miraculous, Anita. You've brought this up a few times and I find it so interesting. I often talk to people on the podcast about time and how time is this humanly concept. And what I understand, one of my teachers taught me is that we have cause and effect here on earth And within that cause and effect, there is time. So for a manifestation to occur, there needs to be time. But when you're in the other realm, heaven, whatever you like to call it, there is no time between cause and effect. A thought happens at the the time that you think about it. Is that correct? It is in that you can literally manifest or be or do anything in an instant, including go back and forward in time, which we're limited from doing that over here, which is good because, because think of all the fear-based thoughts we have. Yes, You don't have those fear-based thoughts there. That's the thing. Here we are in, um, we live in a state of duality. So I'm really glad that things don't manifest as quickly here because we have time to rethink yes. and, yes. and, and, and recalibrate yeah. and work on ourselves and so on. Because um, our thoughts here are so fear-based that we would, our lives would be even crazier Mm. if we manifested them instantly. Like if we manifested our thoughts and emotions instantly, it would be awful. Um, But yeah, over there, it's instantaneous. What did you learn over there about why as humans we exist on this plane? I mean, obviously, as you just mentioned, there is so much fear and especially everything that's happened in the last year with COVID. People seem to put themselves through hell and back 
And from what you're saying, I mean, the way to combat fear is through love. And I mean, I even know that uh, studying everything I have and speaking to so many people, I find myself caught up in fear-based thoughts at times. Why do you think that on this humanly plane, this earthly plane, we have been given fear as an emotion to to grapple with? Um, I actually think that um, originally, like why we have fear originally is like a... um, a survival mechanism, but I think that where we ourselves have gone off the rails is that we have become pathologically fearful. Mm. I don't think that we were meant to go in this direction. I honestly don't think so. Um, I think that something has caused us to go off the rails. When I say something, I think it's our own... um, as a race, as a human race, I think it's our own lust for power, our own uh, ruthlessness, our own greed, whatever we want to call it, has caused caused us to go off the rails a little bit, more than a little bit. Um, Because one of the things I believe is that even before COVID, the world... the the world couldn't keep going the way we were going already as we were before COVID. Um, When you looked at the way the world was going, we were still so destructive. And think about it, like governments and world leaders were more interested in spending trillions of dollars to create weapons to kill each other Mm. while there are people starving in this world. So they were more interested in killing our brothers and sisters than in feeding our brothers and sisters. Look at what kind of a race we are when that's the way we think, you know, and that's where our resources go to. That's where our intelligence goes to, towards destruction as opposed to growth and feeding and, 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 and so on. So, um, I like the stuff that was on the news even before COVID was all the governments um, comparing the size of their nuclear weapons. But nobody talks about how are we going to feed the poor and the hungry and the destitute. So I believe that we couldn't keep going the way we were going anyway. We would have been on the brink of our own extinction if we kept going. And so this is my personal belief and it, you know, whether people believe it or not, but I I don't know if there's been nothing in history that has brought the whole planet to its knees the way COVID has. Mm. There's not a single country or person that hasn't been affected at some level. It brought the whole planet to a standstill where nature could suddenly breathe. Planes stopped flying, cars stopped traveling, and you saw birds and you saw, you know, like nature was now blooming and nature could suddenly breathe, the planet could breathe, the planet came to a standstill. I felt it was a divine intervention yes. to stop us at our knees and to, st- and to make us reevaluate what are we doing? Why are we going in this direction? In a way, I felt it was an opportunity for us to reevaluate like when things open up, how do we, what do we want to see? How do we want to move forward? We can't go back to the way we were. It's pretty much like how when I had the near-death experience and I came back, um, I realized 
because I understood what caused the cancer, I didn't want to go back to being the person I was before. That was the person who was the doormat who got cancer. And so when after the NDE, I had to recreate a new life where I valued myself, where I accessed this state of love, where I knew my life had meaning and purpose. And and I couldn't go back to being that person I was before. I feel that the earth has had its own NDE mm. through this last year. Wow. And it needs to reevaluate how it wants to move forward. Yes. And unfortunately, there are still a lot of people who are still living in this fear and being and, and causing a lot of divisiveness. But the way we need to heal really is um, is to actually come together and not divide. That's what we really need to do. How do you deal with now being on the earthly plane when you have fear come into your life, knowing what you know? So the minute I'm feeling fear, to me, that's a signal that I'm identifying too strongly with the physical and because there is no fear in the other realm. So when you are connected, when you are feeling that love from the universe, from source, from your higher self, from your guides or whatever it is, when you're feeling that, when you're allowing yourself to receive messages or be guided, there is no fear. When you lose touch with that and you're only listening to the messages coming from the physical world at every direction, the news media, social media, people who are rabbiting what's happening, that's when you sink into the fear. Mm. So whenever I feel the fear, because this physical world can be really persistent, then what that tells me is, ah, I'm too immersed in this world. I have to get in touch with my truth. So here's the thing. We are more than physical bodies. We are more than physical beings. We just are. That's what I discovered when I was on the other side. Um, So I say that I call myself a sixth sensory being. I believe we all are, but I usually only speak for myself because you get naysayers and debunkers and skeptics that say, oh, prove it. But when I say is, what I say is that, oh, this is my belief. I believe Mm. I am. So I don't feel the need to prove anything. But if what I say resonates, take it. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. But I believe that we are six sensory beings who have been conditioned to believe that we are five sensory beings. So we have denied one of our senses. The thing is, the sense that we have denied is actually our greatest and most powerful sense. Um, it would be like telling you that you you cannot see. It would be like telling you, close your eyes. And from birth, if I told you, or from the time you were old enough to understand and comprehend, if I said, Sarah, you must keep your eyes closed and never open your eyes. And you say, but why? Look, I can see. And if I said, nope, that's a distraction. It'll distract you from navigating the world the way it's meant, it's meant to be navigated. And it's your imagination. So keep your eyes closed. So under pressure, you keep your eyes closed because you want to fit in with everyone yes. else. So if everybody denied this sense, 
we would create a world. So if it was, if I told you to close your eyes, if we were, so if we were four sensory beings now, because everybody had their eyes closed, we would create a world for four sensory people, created by four sensory people. That world would have technology to help us navigate the world without sight. That world would not have aesthetic um, art because you don't have eyes to admire art. You wouldn't have fashion. You wouldn't have cinematography. You wouldn't have um, architecture. You know, there's so much that would be lacking. But all your technology and everything would be geared towards helping you navigate life as a four sensory being. In the same way, we have actually, we are actually six sensory beings who have suppressed our intuition. Intuition and that connection with our higher self is very real, very powerful, more powerful than our other five senses, but we have never um, honed it because we've ignored it. We've never known about it. We have no language to describe it because it's not been recognized as a thing. Now, I want you to, um, I don't know if you would even remember this. You're probably too young to remember. But back in 2004, 2005, there was a tsunami off the coast yes, of no, Australia in Indonesia. I definitely remember where that. A lot of yeah. people were killed on the coastal towns. Yes. A lot of people. And it made global headlines because a lot of resorts were knocked mm. down and tourists from all over the world succumbed and drowned. Huge tsunami. What they discovered some months later is that, uh, yes, and it was in Bali, Indonesia, mm. on the coast of Indonesia. They discovered that very few, if any, animals died because the animals all went to higher ground a day before the tsunami. They knew the tsunami was coming. Now, animals don't debunk each other. They just know. They, mm. they, they rely on that sense. They rely on it and it is stronger than their other senses. With humans, it is also stronger if you were aware of it from the time yes. you were born and you were allowed to express it, embrace it, use it, talk about it, give it language. But unfortunately, we get told, oh, it's your imagination. Those are your imaginary friends. It's woo-woo. Oh, that person's flaky. So, <laughs> so where I'm going with this is that because we have denied that connection yes. to the universe, we, we've cut that off. This is why... Um, we live in fear. So to explain that is, so all our information is coming through secondhand, thirdhand sources yes. of people who are saying stuff to us like, and, and, and telling us stuff like, oh, your body can get sick at any time. One in three people are going to get cancer or everybody might get COVID or, you know, we're hearing these all the time and we're taking it on as truth mm. without realizing, but wait a minute, I have my own connection up here yes. and this connection is telling me my body is powerful I need to tune in and find my purpose. Let me get downloads. What is my purpose? And so we, so because we've cut off that connection and take that one as gospel, yes. the one here, that's how we fall into fear. 
And then when we're in fear, we operate from fight or flight. Yes. When we're in fight or flight, we're operating from our um, on adrenaline mm. and we get depleted and tired. And so we fall into this whole earthly spiral. So if you fall into fear, find your connection. Yes, that is such <laughs> brilliant advice. You've talked a bit about how you thought that you brought on your cancer through your fear. Do you think that's true for people that have most illnesses, that it's brought on by their thoughts? I don't want to make a blanket statement. So um, I, I don't usually speak for other people. Yes. Because, you know, um, but I will say this, that there are a lot of people who are super sensitive empaths who take on the energies of other people. I was one of them. And these people are also highly suggestible. And so for such people, I believe that they need to be aware that they have a tendency to get sick because they're taking on the energies of other people. And I say this not to make them fearful. I say this because I want them to know that you can heal if you know this and if you know you have a tendency to do this. That's what I want to say. Um, Hence why my passion now has been speaking with highly sensitive people and empaths because I believe that... um, There could be people on the other end of the spectrum who are not super sensitive, who don't absorb other people's energies, who do go and trash their life and get sick. That's a whole different thing. Um, But there are also thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who are empaths, who are super sensitive, who are constantly out there helping and serving people and not realizing that they are an energetic sponge and taking on the energies of the people around them. That's why I got cancer, because I did not realize that I am an empath with a tendency to take on other people's energies. If I knew that then, I probably never would have got sick. Hence why I I tell that to empaths again, not to scare you that you have a tendency, but because it's it's what I wish I knew then, I would not have got sick if I knew it then. After your dad, Anita, told you the beautiful words to live your life fearlessly, how did you then go about changing your life? Um, It was a challenge because I realised that the community that I was in the community, the people around me, the friends and everything, the circle I was in, was built around the person I used to be. Mm. The fearful doormat um, there to serve everyone except myself. Um, So, of course, everybody I attracted was there because I was the shoulder to cry on. I was the one that would give and give of myself that never learned to receive. And I realized I could not be that person anymore. And it was scary because um, I was afraid that I was going to lose a lot of friends. And luckily, I didn't lose all my friends. Um, Luckily, my husband, Danny, stuck by me. Um, He was very, very happy for me to, to change and grow and be stronger and be more myself and not be a doormat. It thrilled him to see that. And I did lose one or two friends. And it was sad, but I had to come to terms with that, that I could not go back to being the person I used to be. Um, 
every now and then, even till today, I still deal with that. Like I might meet somebody who knew me as the person I was before and who might talk to me in that same way and treat me in that same way uh, and talk down to me and lecture me and, and whatever in that same way. And, uh, and it just reminds me, and, and I don't react to them because it's not a trigger for me or anything, but it just reminds me of how, how far I've come. Yes. Is love our purest emotion in this earthly realm? It is, and I think there, here in this earthly realm, there are degrees of love. Yes. I think that um, what a lot of people interpret as love isn't actually love because love is unconditional. But the fact that we have to use the word unconditional love means that we don't really understand what true love is. And the fact that I, even when I describe it, I have to say the love there was unconditional because here um, for a lot of people, they don't realize it, it's unconscious but when, but even when they declare they love someone and when that person grows, um, the, the love stops. Mm. Like when, you know, so for example, um, if I was in a different type of relationship and I can just imagine, um, and I know relationships like this, that after the NDE, I changed, I grew so much, mm. but I grew into the person who I really am. And I grew into loving myself so much more that I felt I needed to do this regardless of who came on this journey with mm. me or not. I can imagine that if I was married to a different kind of person, um, that it would intimidate, it could yes. intimidate them. And it could uh, scare them off and have them stop loving me because perhaps, particularly because of the culture I come from, I would no longer be that subservient wife that they married. Yes. Whereas my husband Danny was, he, I think he loved me even more for becoming yeah. this person, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> he loved it. He loved how I was just yes. Yeah, how could just he not more myself? <laughs> How did the doctors and the medical team explain your near-death experience? Uh, so many of the ones who were entrenched in medicine, who were entrenched in oncology, were unable to explain it to the point where they almost try to take the miracle away. Mm. You know, they need to do that because they can't box it in that in the way they they need to um, but there were others so I'm thankful that I had enough doctors supporting me so that I didn't feel I was going crazy so there were two doctors in particular at that time who completely supported me now even though my oncologist struggled with accepting it they did say, you're lucky to be alive. They did say that. And they said that, you know, you, um, that what happened to you is very rare. It doesn't happen. So they were aware of that. But they still 
when I told them what I experienced on the other side, they said, no, I don't think so. You were hallucinating because of the drugs. And I said, no, but I had to have experienced it because that's what triggered the healing. And they said, no, spontaneous remissions do happen from time to time. And you're lucky and that, it, yes. that you're one of the people who experienced it. So they kind of explained it away. But um, I did have a couple of doctors who who completely supported me, my own GP or MD, you know, general practitioner, my family doctor, basically. Um, He completely believed me and everything I said about what Mm. happened on the other side. And he still remains a friend today. Oh, and he lives in Australia right now in Perth. Fantastic. Um, So he was my doctor in Hong Kong. Um, And, but then when Wayne Dyer discovered my story, Um, I was afraid if the story goes big that I would be met with a lot of skeptics and debunkers, but I was blessed to then meet scientists, quantum scientists like Bruce Lipton and Joe Dispenza, all of whom were able to explain everything that happened to me in quantum physics. And they actually said I was living proof of what they talk about. And I was like, finally, there's science (laughs) that actually explains it. So that was really good. You know, it was very assuring for me. We love them. We've had both Bruce and Joe on the podcast. And Wayne Dyer, let's talk about him for a second, because I always always speak about Wayne on the podcast. And had I had gotten into this work before he passed away, he would have 100% been one of my one of my top interviews. He was a very dear friend of yours, uh, one of the, the world's yes. most amazing, amazing spiritual teachers. You've said that you still yes, are yes. able to connect with him. Yes, I feel him still because he was my mentor for about four years. I mean, as you know, he discovered my story brought me out on the world stage. He had Hay House, um, yes. you, you know, he had me write the book and had Hay House publish it. So all that, the book Dying to Be Me and all of that came about because of him. And then we toured the world together. Yeah. Um, so it was him and his assistant and his daughter and me and my husband, Danny. And we, we even did uh, a couple of trips to Australia as well. Wow. I think twice with Wayne, I toured Australia and um, and we toured all over. We, we were in Europe and, and the US and whatever for four years. And um, after he passed away, when I would do events, I would feel his presence. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting because it's been really interesting because whenever I talk about him at an event with an audience, I've noticed this so many times when I'm speaking about him and saying, oh, Wayne was like so amazing and bless him. And and then sometimes I might joke about him and say something funny that he said. And and whenever I joke about him or laugh um, about something about him, the lights in the auditorium flicker where I'm speaking. And this has happened so often that it's too often uh, to be a coincidence. It's definitely, so it's like, and, and now it's got to the point that when I do that, you know, I might say something like something funny about Wayne yes. and then the lights will flicker. It's Aww. like he's laughing with me. Aww. And I'll tell the audience, see, that was Wayne. It happens every time I poke fun at him. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> he's letting me know that he hears me. I'm poking fun at him. Amazing. Because when we were together, I would we would poke fun at each yes. other. So I'm kind of showing him I'm still doing that when he's up there. Isn't that so special? 
Anita, what's mm. your definition of the soul? Um, to me, the soul is the part of me that has always lived and will always live. It is the part of me that is connected to source and connected to all the other spirits. Um, I use the analogy, so, so I'm going to give you an analogy, which is probably a weird analogy, but, but uh, do you know those disco balls, yes. those mirror balls yeah, yeah. that you see in, uh, and probably before your time, but back in the 70s yes. and 80s, they used to have those yeah. disco balls with all those mirrors. If you imagine that um, there's a disco ball with all those, um, the mosaic of, of mirrors, and it's a huge, let's say it's a huge disco ball with hundreds and hundreds of these mosaic mirror tiles. And, and it's refracting light on the walls. So what you see on the walls are these little specks of light, little dots of light, right? And as the ball is spinning, you see the, the lights are spinning, but they're all very specific little um, circles of, of light being refracted from each tile. Now imagine if each of those little spots of light on the wall is, uh, represents us as a physical being. So all of us physical beings see each other as being separate because all those little spots on the wall, they, they don't look connected. They're all separate from each other. They're individual little spots. That's us. We think we're all individual. But each of us is being refracted from a little mirror tile. And that mirror tile is connected to all the other tiles. And all of them are connected to make one giant ball. To me, that giant ball is consciousness. It's yeah. pure consciousness or God. We can call it God. We can call it source. But that is pure consciousness. It is the souls of every being all together. And we're all connected. And so each of us, because we're connected as one consciousness, as one ball, we can actually access information from each other, which is what we call intuition, telepathy, ESP. We're accessing because all of us together form this giant cosmic web where we all have access to everybody's information. That's how intuition work, works. But uh, we are refracting our light on this earth as individual physical bodies. And our bodies here on this earth have been convinced to believe that we are separate individual beings mm. that are purely physical, purely existing on this earth or purely existing on this wall as a two-dimensional flat light without realizing that, hey, in actuality, I'm not two-dimensional. I'm three-dimensional being refracted from that mirror ball. So mm. with us, we are not three-dimensional. We are four-dimensional being refracted from pure consciousness through our little, um, our little mirror tile, which is our soul, yeah. which, is, which has access to all the information, and it's projecting through this physical body on this earth. If we knew that we were all connected, we would create a very different reality. Yes, that's beautiful. What's the best advice, Anita, that you've ever been given? Uh, to go and live my life fearlessly. Oh, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> that is beautiful advice. 
<laughs> What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? To love myself. Mm. <laughs> that has, it took me a lifetime. It took me death to learn that. Yes. It took me death. I, uh, and it's, it's ridiculous how hard that lesson was to learn because I was getting so many wake-up calls even when I was sick. Even while I was sick and had cancer, I always worried more about other people when they would come to see me to make my life easier. I would worry about them and say, oh, I don't want to inconvenience them. And, and, and um, I was always giving and I never learned to receive, to receive love or to love myself. And it took death for me to realize, oh, I'm supposed to love myself. And if I am constantly giving and giving, I need to learn to receive as well. That was the hardest lesson for me to learn. And literally it took death for me to learn how important it is. What's your favorite prayer? to change what I can, to accept what I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. Oh, that's so beautiful. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness really, to me, is someone just living their lives fully and authentically and totally embracing who they are. It doesn't matter if they fail, if they fall flat on their face or they succeed or they become known or not known, but it is someone who fully embraces who they are, every part of themselves and lives their life fully. Anita Muljani, thank you. You are such a gem. Thank you so much for such a wisdom-filled conversation today. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. It was such a pleasure being here and thank you for your beautiful questions. For more inspiration and wisdom, I would love you to join me and my community on Instagram at a Life of Greatness podcast. To purchase my ebook Finding Greatness and watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. Love what you heard? Then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast. Download the new Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.